All right, guys. Hey, Hark the Herald Angel Sings is actually one of my favorite, uh, it might be my favorite Christmas uh, song. So I'm, uh, I love singing that. Uh, part of it is you kind of get the glimpse of the epic nature of Christmas during that song. Just if you're, even if you just read through the lyrics, the lyrics communicate these uh, really elevated truths about what Christmas and the nature of Christmas really is. Um, and so there, there's, uh, we're in this Advent season, it, it comes every year. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, this Advent season leads us right up to our Christmas celebration. And when you think of Christmas, I'm curious what comes to mind. If you're like, it's, it's, it's Christmas season, it's Advent season. What are some of the things that come to mind for you? Um, you might, uh, here's some of the things that might come to mind for you. We're, we have some pictures for you. A Christmas tree. Right? <clears throat> some, some of, what is just a show of hands? Live Christmas trees? Raise your hands. Okay, and then uh, not live, fake Christmas trees? It's pretty split, guys. It's really interesting. Uh, it's another day, another, a topic for another day. Okay, so Christmas trees might come to mind for you. Uh, what's something else that might come to mind for you? Christmas lights. Uh, I don't know who these people are. This picture came off of Google. That's not my house. I had a really hard time just getting up a single strand, like a really hard time. All right, but it's up and uh, we don't have timers. All of my neighbors have timers on their lights and I'm like, good for you. I'm just like plugging in multiple lights because three nights in a row, the fuses uh, went out on the lights. And so I was replacing fuses. It was a, a real like uh, situation that we had. But we have Christmas lights up. They don't look like that. They did a good job. So you might think of Christmas trees or Christmas lights or even uh, Christmas movies. Uh, Christmas movies might come to mind. So I, I would guess you have a favorite Christmas movie or at least you have a least favorite Christmas movie. Okay, so that might be true for you. I don't know how you feel about Miracle on 34th Street. I don't know how you feel about the big guy uh, in the picture, but that's uh, Santa. He may also come to mind for you when you think about Christmas. Uh, these are all things that we associate with this season that you're in. I went to the TCU Christmas tree lighting this last week. Did anybody else go to that? Um, I was with some of you, yeah. There. <laughs> uh, so some, some of you were there also, and it was epic. I was like, I've never seen so many college students and toddlers in the same place. It's like a picture one day of Kid City when we have all these toddlers and college students who are serving them. It's gonna be amazing, all right? Um, but there was like tons and tons and tons of cookies and um, the Christmas tree lighting itself was anticlimactic. It came, it was like five, four, three, two, one. It was like, you know, the lights came on. But then there was like an amazing fireworks show that followed that. And it was like uh, traumatizing to all the children, but the college students were losing their minds. It was amazing. It was like a really, really fun deal. But of all these things that you can think of with the Christmas season, there's one image that uh, has kind of captured my imagination, really captured my heart for what I think of. Uh, I think it's at, it's at the heart of what Christmas really is. And I know we talked about War, World War I a moment ago and how that peace did not last, and it didn't last. Uh, not very long afterwards, there was World War II. And, and the image that comes to mind for me is actually from World War II, it's this image. That, that for me captures the heart of Christmas more than almost any other image. You're like, that is so different from Miracle on 34th Street. It is. It's really different. Uh, a lot of you probably recognize this as soon as you see it. This is a Higgins boat. 
is what those boats are called with the ramps that fall down. And these Higgins boats were made famous uh, in the D-Day invasion on the beaches of Normandy. Right? So that's, that's why you recognize this image is because it's from D-Day. Uh, and and D-Day was this legendary event in which Allied forces, they stormed the beaches of Normandy, Normandy, France. And, and ultimately, this invasion was part of the operation that turned the tide for World War II. Uh, and, and there's something about World War II to me that's just so clear. Like, it's good guys versus bad guys, uh, no questions asked on this. Now, does that mean all of the soldiers in these uh, Axis armies were bad people? No, but the forces that work in World War II were forces of darkness. And so we can have a conversation on that later if you disagree, but, uh, but it's, it's very clear that Nazi Germany was committing atrocities that were purely evil, right? So that, that's what was happening in World War II, and this is why it's so clear to me uh, that it was, it was uh, defeating Germany, which was what you, the United States, their, their stated ultimate goal was to defeat Germany. And, uh, and so that, that goal was actually uh, accomplished through Operation Overlord. And you're like, dude, why are you telling me all this information? You, you'll see. Okay, so Operation Overlord was a plan designed to bring about this goal of defeating Germany. And, uh, and D-Day was just the first, in, in, first part of that operation. I'm up here on this like really high stand. So if I fall off, that'll be entertaining for you. Um, and so that, that was just the first part of this larger operation was this D-Day invasion. It was a first step towards setting free captives to destroying those who would steal, kill, and destroy. And that is why this is a picture of Christmas. If anything is a picture of Christmas, if anything is a reflection of the true nature of Christmas, this is a picture of Christmas. An invasion that marked the launch of Operation Redemption. An invasion that marked the launch of God's rescue plan. That's what Christmas was. And so a baby boy laying in a manger 2,000 years ago was nothing less than an assault on darkness and death. That's what Christmas is. And so we tend to domesticate Christmas. Like that's what we tend to do. And it's not, it's not on purpose, but we end up taming Christmas a little bit. We, we take the edge off of it and we develop these subplots that miss the glory of the main plot. That's what we end up doing with these kind of subplots. And so our joy in Christmas ends up being limited because we, the need that we believe it meets is limited. A limited joy comes from meeting a limited need. And so eternal joy is no longer what's on the line with Christmas when we kind of let it drift off into these subplots. Eternal joy is not on the line, just seasonal happiness. We want to have a happy Christmas. And uh, we settle for lesser joy when we confine it just to the boundaries of a cultural celebration, when we keep Christmas confined inside of these places that feel uh, familiar. There's nothing wrong with the familiar places. I have a Christmas tree and I have Christmas lights and I watch Christmas movies. Santa Buddies is the most played movie in my home right now. Uh, and it's uh, really an interesting mashup of Santa and Airbud. Um, and so it's pretty impressive how they accomplished that. But nevertheless, uh, we we miss the joy of Christmas when we keep it inside of these bounds. We settle for a lesser joy, and that's the real danger for us. If I was thinking about our church, like, hey, what's the real danger for us in Advent season? It's that we're gonna miss the true nature of the role of Christmas in the story of our redemption. But not just our redemption, your redemption. 
that you would somehow miss the nature of Christmas, what it's really about in your redemption. And so when I think of Christmas, this is what I'm thinking of. It's a Higgins boat with soldiers piling out of it, running through surf to set captives free. And so the beaches actually were stormed uh, around dawn. So it was around 6 a.m. that they uh, that these boats started just piling onto these beaches. And uh, but there's something interesting as you study D-Day that uh, before sunrise in the wee hours of June 6th, uh, there were thousands of soldiers parachuting behind enemy lines. These paratroopers dropping in uh, more inland. And, and there was something interesting that they were doing. They were actually on a mission to clear a path for the invading army. That's what they were doing. They were uh, clearing a path. They were securing bridges and they were securing these roads to prepare a way. And it was so fascinating to me to think about that. Because it's like this perfect correlation to what's happening with the Christmas invasion. So if you think about Christmas as an invasion, which is what it is, it's an invasion of light into darkness to retake this territory that was under the domain of somebody who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what's happening in Christmas. And so now we have this moment where, yes, Jesus arrives, and it's like this arrival of storming the beaches, but now there's these people dropping behind enemy lines to prepare a way. And so the, the, the real like beginning of the invasion of Christmas, the Christmas invasion. It began with the announcement and arrival of a baby boy, but not Jesus. This is so fascinating. When you look at how uh, Luke tells this story in the, in the book of Luke, which is where we'll be, the way that this invasion begins is with an announcement and arrival of a baby named John. And so if we want to understand God's rescue plan and really kind of understand the nature of Christmas in, in the role it plays in our own redemption, then we need to understand the full picture of the invasion. And so we need to understand John's role in this story. I think it's going to tell us something about our role in this operation of redemption that God's still carrying out. Okay? And so uh, what I want you to hold on to today more than anything else is this uh, one sentence that God's rescue plan hinges on messengers delivering news of unstoppable joy. So say just again, it's not a short sentence. I try to make them as short as possible. But this one is that God's rescue plan hinges on messengers delivering news of unstoppable joy. And, and the most simple way to approach this text, it's like the, one of the longest chapters ever. And so we're not going to read through all of it, but, but I want you to see the three different messengers that show up throughout this text. Okay, so keep an eye on the three different messengers that we're going to see show up in this text. And they're going to tell us something about God's rescue plan and the role that we're called to play in it. Okay, so go to Luke chapter 1 if you have a Bible. Um, if you don't, there's some in the back. And you really want to, the, the text will be on the screen, but you'll be able to track with it and interact with this story. And I hope you do. I hope you interact with this story beyond today, that you go back and reread it and try to just, I, I've read the story like, I don't know, a hundred times this week, trying to wrap my mind fully around it. And so uh, go back and reread it this week. But if you have a Bible, pull it out. If you have an app, get to it. Okay, so it's Luke chapter one. It was written, uh, Luke was written by a doctor who was really serving as an investigative journalist. Uh, that's, what, that's what he was doing. Uh, and it's the longest of all the gospel accounts. Uh, Luke, Luke is the longest of all of them. And actually, if you consider that Acts really follows with Luke, it's a sequel to Luke, then it's, it's way longer than any of, of, the, of the other ones, okay? And so that's, uh, it, it gives us the most detailed account of the Christmas story. Um, and, and really, it gives us the only account of the events that we're going to see today. 
And scholars think that the reason that he includes some of the details that he does is that he was able to sit down with a very special part of the Christmas story. And this was fascinating to me, just studying Luke. And uh, that th- some scholars think he actually got to sit down with Mary and, uh, and hear her account of the story, in which, uh, to me, would just be so mind-blowing. You know, if you could just sit down with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and say, tell me, what was it like? He, what did he say? How did that feel? T- tell me about that. So he got to do that, and then he recorded it. All of that, <clears throat> uh, he, he states that in his introduction, he wants this guy named Theophilus, who's most likely like a high-ranking public official, he wants him to have certainty about what he's putting his faith in, about what he's trusting his life to. He wants him to be certain about God's glo- global rescue plan and particularly his part in that plan. And that's what I want, I want for you to have today. I want you to share in that certainty today. Uh, the word he uses in his introduction is sort of just like this tightening down, securing. And so that's what I want you to have today is a certainty. And so would God use his word this morning to reveal his plan for our unstoppable joy and how we are called to uh, the role we're playing in that. So I'm going to pray for us just as we're beginning to read. Father, would you, would you do that in us this morning? Would you do what I cannot? Would you speak through your word? Um, would you even use me as a messenger to talk about a messenger this morning? Not because I'm worthy, but because of the gospel of Jesus. And then would you give just... Um, would you give us hearts in here to be receptive to your word? Speak to us this morning, Father. We need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to pick up in Luke 1, verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so what he does right here, just he anchors uh, this story in time. Uh, he anchors it with the rule of this certain king, okay? And that's basically right before 0 AD, okay? If you're trying to keep up, it's uh, something happens at 0 AD, it's a big deal, all right? And so they counted down to it. And so then he starts telling this about this couple, uh, this certain couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And, uh, and their spiritual lineage is just really impressive as far as spiritual lineages go, okay? So it'd be like being Billy Graham's son or something like that, something really epic. Uh, but he's, they're part of this uh, very uh, elite spiritual lineage. And, uh, and what's interesting is Zechariah is a priest, but he's also married to a daughter of Aaron. And that daughter of Aaron is named Elizabeth, which is what Aaron's wife's name was. And so it's just like all these flags of like, hey, these people know what's going on and they are in the know when it comes to spiritual things. Um, and, and not only that, in terms of living out their faith, what you see is that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And so does that mean with, they're without sin? It does not mean that. It means that in terms of following God's law and obeying God's law, they were really living it out. If anybody's really living this thing, if anybody's faithful, if anybody's really plugged into what God's doing, it would be this couple. And so if you're playing sort of a spiritual monopoly of sorts, you would think that they're going to win, okay? They're going to end up with all the right amount of money and all the right houses and locations in this monopoly game. They should be the ones with a charmed life, if anybody has a charmed life. They're really living it out. They really have this spiritual lineage. But what we see in verse 7 is it says this, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so in a society where your family line meant everything, 
their family line was going to end with them. And it's not like a maybe, like, hey, guys, let's hold out for hope a little bit. The advanced in years language is the same for Sarah and Abraham that you see in Genesis. It's like this, they're very, very super duper old. Like, it's not happening physiologically for them. And, and some of you, some, some of you or some people you know that are close to you have walked through the pain and the hardship that Elizabeth and Zechariah have walked through. This pain of infertility, this struggle, longing, the desire for children, and it's amplified or, or it just correlates even in this society where family line meant everything. And certainly if you don't have a kid, that must be that God is punishing you. And so there's this tension we see between their suffering and their faithfulness, and God's going to work right in the middle of that. And so I just want you to hear that this morning, that what you're going to see is that God knows about the pain and suffering that you're walking through in your life. And if you're trying to do a one-to-one on suffering and God's uh, affection towards you, that's not a good plan. There's not a one-to-one on your suffering and God's affection for you or his approval of you. You just need to hear that. That's what the text will tell you. I'll tell you that every day of your life. So pick it up again in verse 8. It says, Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah is a priest, but the actual time that he spends doing his priestly duty is, is not nearly as long as you would think. It's actually really brief. Um, I didn't understand this at first. I thought it was just like, hey, he's just going to work every day. This, is what, this actually is like two weeks out of the year that his group of guys, these priests, are going to be serving the Lord in the temple. And not only that, there were a thousand priests in his division. And so the likelihood of him actually serving in this particular space is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It was actually going to be sure that it was a once in a lifetime because I think you get pulled out of the the drawing once you've done it. So this is literally the culmination of his whole career as a priest. This is that one moment, his time to serve representing God's people uh, during this offering in the temple. And so there was probably a level of excitement, a level of emotion, and then a level of weight representing your nation before the Lord God of the universe. And that's what he was doing. He's walking into the temple to make this offering during the burning of incense. And so it's just one time that he's going to do that. And, um, and so just so you know, this is kind of like a note on here. The Christmas invasion doesn't begin outside of God's routine. The Christmas invasion actually happens in the midst of God's, uh, God's people faithfully seeking him. And this, for me, as a person who really struggles with rhythm and routine, uh, I tend to try to find a new way to do this or a new adventure to chase or a new project to do. But really what I'm seeing here is that uh, there is an importance to the faithful, diligent, just going before the Lord, looking for him, not in a new place, but in the same old places going back to that space of prayer, going back to his word, going back to a conversation, getting into these routines and rhythms and to not be discouraged. These people waited 400 years to hear from God. Sometimes it's hard for me to wait 10 minutes. So don't give up and don't be discouraged in the midst of pursuing God in, in the routine. And it says in verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. And so I don't blame Zechariah for this. 
If you're just trying to like, be like, man, what would you expect? You wouldn't expect that. You never expect to see an angel. Okay, I get a little bit freaked out when I see somebody, just a normal person somewhere I don't expect to see them. Okay, I think I've told you guys this before, but when I was like a teenager, I would be like brushing my teeth and I'd spit out the toothpaste. And somehow my mom would always find a way of walking in right when my head was down. And I'd look up and there's a person standing behind me and it was like always so scary. And, uh, and so there's a sense in which Zechariah doesn't expect to see anybody, much less an angel. And so I don't blame him. Every single time a human being encounters a heavenly being, the same thing happens. The angel has to like calm him down and say, hey, come back, buddy. It's okay. We're gonna, you're going to live. Every time. Just look. They're like, every time it's like, I'm, I'm, they're falling on the ground. Like they're dead. They're, they're scared. Um, they pass out every time. So uh, I don't blame Zechariah. But needless to say, this is an unexpected messenger. Angel literally means messenger. Uh, and so uh, he's speaking to a shocked and fearful priest and he brings this message we're about to read. And keep in mind that God's rescue plan hinges upon messengers delivering news of unstoppable joy. And so here's his message. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. So just push pause there. He says, I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to punish you. I'm here to tell you that God has heard you. I don't know if we really believe that when we pray, that God really hears you. It might change the way that we pray, but here he's saying God has heard you. And you're going to have a baby boy, and you're going to call him John. Then he says, and you will have joy and gladness, which is just the very natural response to this news. It'd be like, yes, we're going to have a baby. Amazing. Um, uh, but, he's, but he goes on. He doesn't just stop. And it's going to be great for you guys. I'm so glad for you guys. You know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you guys have been waiting a long time. So here it is. Here's your baby boy. Have fun. Okay. Get that new little like rocker thing that you need. And if you, you know, we'll have a sprinkle for you later. Uh, it'll be fine. He's like, that's not at all what he's doing. He says, you're going to have joy and gladness. But watch what else he says. He says, not just you, many will rejoice at his birth. The joy of many is on the line with this baby boy because he has a great role to play in the plan of God. So here's what greatness is going to look like for him. He keeps going in verse uh, 15. He says, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so this baby boy is going to be a prophet. The life that he describes him living is a life of a prophet. And so when he says you must not drink wine or strong drink, that there's nothing inherently sinful about alcohol, but what it does have is an influencing, controlling factor, especially when you've come under the influence. I mean, we can, it's still relevant today. A DUI is driving under the influence. <clears throat> and so what he's saying is nothing is going to influence this baby boy except for the Holy Spirit. Don't let anything else control him but the Holy Spirit. And from his mother's womb, he's going to be doing this work filled by the Holy Spirit. It's pretty amazing truth that he's speaking over this kid. And so he's not just any prophet. 
He says he's the forerunner of the Messiah. That's who he's describing. Remember back in Malachi? Remember last week? If you, didn't, if you missed it, Carl preached on this last week. Malachi was saying, hey, there's gonna come a day, but before that day, there's gonna be somebody who comes in the, in the power. Elijah's gonna come before that. And so he's saying in the, in the spirit and the power of Elijah, this prophet's gonna come. Why? To prepare the way of the Lord, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And this is just too much for Zechariah, okay? Keep tracking with me because we've got one messenger down, okay? It's the angel, okay? Just like if you're looking for like the fill in the blank, uh, it's angel, Gabriel, okay? We'll find out his name is Gabriel in just a second. So in Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Do you, uh, do you blame him? At first, when I read this, like the first hundred times I read this passage, I blamed him. It's like, come on, man, you're in the temple. There's an angel. If, if you're gonna believe anybody, believe the angel. You know, like that guy's gotta be, know something you don't know. He can fly, I think, you know. He, he's got inside info. But then, you know, you just think about what he's being promised here. It's just too much for him. Could I really believe that? Could God really be this good to me? Could he really be that good to me? He said, I'm old. My wife's like super old. That's like the language there. I'm old. My wife's super old. Poor Elizabeth, always getting called out for being old. I'm like, it's really, like, guys, come on. She's here, okay? Uh, but he, that's what he says. I'm old. She's super old. There's no way this is happening. It's a miracle if this happens. And so uh, the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And so there's this exchange that happens. It's just epic. Uh, Gabriel knows something. He knows that this is God's plan. This is not just a baby being born to a couple struggling with infertility. This is the baby who's going to announce the Messiah. This is the initiating of the Christmas invasion. Gabriel knows that this is God's plan. And while they are often unexpected, they never, ever fail. God's plans are often unexpected, but they never, ever fail. And so his confidence in delivering this message has everything to do with the one who is sending it, not the one who's delivering it. He's not like, look at me, I'm an angel, dude. Like, I've never lied. Like, I'm an angel. I, but what he says is, I stand in the presence of God and God gave me this message. And so I know it's going to happen. You should know it's going to happen because God gave me this message and for no other reason. So he knows this is God's plan. He knows that John is part of God's plan. John 1.6, a different John, just for the record. John the apostle versus John the Baptist. Okay, John 1, 6, speaking about John the Baptist, says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And is there anything more clear than that? Like, where did John come from? He was sent from God. 
He was a person whose entire being was devoted to this one thing. And so this is the news that he's bringing. It's a news of joy. It's a news of unstoppable joy. Look at it. Even Zechariah's unbelief is not going to stop it. Look at this. I, th- I think of anything in this passage, it might be this that you need to look at and say, hey, when you fail to receive God's news in the right way, when you fail to understand his plans in the right way, that is not going to change his plans, his plans of good towards you in Jesus. They are still intact. Look at this. He's disciplined here for his unbelief, is he not? He says, hey, because you don't believe me, you're not going to be able to talk. But it doesn't stop God's plans. God's promises aren't fickle, and his discipline is never random. It's for a purpose. And so I believe it was this discipline that served as a sign for Zechariah. He was asking, hey, can I get a sign? The angel's like, yeah, you're going to get a sign. You can't say anything. And most likely, he also can't hear anything. Okay, because later on in the text, what we're going to see is that people were having to do sign language to get him to understand what was going on in naming his son. So he was uh, deaf and mute for about nine months. And what I want you to see is what happens when John is finally born, nine months after sitting in silence, not saying anything and not hearing anything. The last thing that Zechariah heard were the words of an angel saying, this is gonna be fulfilled. This is God's plan and you can count on it. It's gonna happen. We're, I'm about to have a, uh, we're about to have a baby. My, well, my wife's going to have a baby, and I'm going to be there. Um, and, um, but we're going to have a child. And, you know, before you find out the, the sex of the baby, everybody's like, I think it's going to be a boy, and I think it's going to be a girl. And uh, it's like, <laughs> it's 50-50 every time, guys. And so uh, it's called the gambler's fallacy. If you try to tell me, oh, well, you had a girl last time, so you do the math. I'm like, the math says it's 50-50. Okay, so just so you know. And so even something about this is like, he didn't have a sonogram, he knew God's plan. That's what he was saying. This is God's plan and it's going to come to fruition. And so Zechariah, Zechariah, he's got lots of time. I've never been quiet for nine months. Not even close, like nine minutes. I've never been in silence for nine months. But this is God's discipline over Zechariah. And you need to see what happens with God's discipline. God's discipline is not driving you away from him. God's discipline is drawing you near to him. And that's exactly what is happening for Zechariah. God's discipline is not driving him away from God. It's drawing him near to God to make him both a a receiver of this message of joy. And now he's going to turn him into a deliverer of this message of joy. Watch it happen. Okay, it says now the, this is, we're going to jump to verse 57. Okay, so just jump with me. Uh, It says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. Okay, so for for the record, the the sign was already being fulfilled because he he walked out of the temple and he couldn't talk. Okay, so he's like, well, there's something, this angel's on to something, 
okay? And then he sat in silence. He couldn't hear anything. He couldn't say anything for nine months. And then she gives birth. Whoa, it's a son, okay? And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise. This is like a funny day. It's like a mob coming to circumcise a child, which sounds really scary. I think it was just how it worked in the day. And so uh, this small mob was coming to circumcise this child and they, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. So they're like, Zechariah, we don't know what's going on with him. He's not saying anything. And, uh, and so we're just going to call him Zechariah because Zechariah Jr., you guys have been waiting for a kid for like 150 years or something. And so here you go, Zechariah Jr. And his mom speaks up, Elizabeth says, no. No, this is not our baby. This is not our thing. This is not our story. This baby's name is John. He was named by God. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They're like, did you just pick that out of nowhere? Like, I was going to pick a name just to be funny. And I, I was like, that's going to be somebody's name in here. Uh, so, so none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father. So you see it. If he, if he was just mute, then they would have been like, what do you think, Zechariah? But they didn't. They had to like do signs, write it on a tablet for him. And they said, what do you think? What do you want to name him? They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted to be, him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. It's like so simple. But nine months of quiet reflecting on God's plan, not just for him, but for the world, led him to a place of obedience to say, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. This discipline that he, that he went through over the course of this nine-month period, it led him not to a place of being angry with God, but of blessing God. He sees in this moment not his story being fulfilled, but God's plan being fulfilled through this baby boy, the forerunner, the initiator of, of the Christmas invasion. And so don't you know it would be tempting to say, no, I want this to be my son. I've been waiting for this my whole life. God, you owe this to be my son with my name, fulfilling my story. That's not what he says. He says, this is your plan, not mine. And this child is your child, not mine. Zechariah heard the message of unstoppable joy, and then he becomes the messenger of unstoppable joy. Watch what he says. He, he goes on and says the Holy Spirit fills him, and, and he begins to prophesy. He becomes somebody who's speaking. So Zechariah, the father of a prophet, becomes in this moment a prophet, and he says, and it's, and it's verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. It's, he knows God's plan is so sure that he puts it in the past tense. He has visited. He has redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about his son. He's talking about King Jesus, who his son met in his mother's womb. Come on, Zechariah, tell us more. And speaking about John, Luke 1, 76 through 79, he says, and you, child, talking now to his baby boy, looks at him and he says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. 
What are his ways? What does what this preparation look like? To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of why? Not God's anger towards people, but his tender mercy, the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. That is why that picture of a Higgins boat pouring soldiers out into enemy territory to recover what has been lost to shine light into darkness. That is why this is a picture of Christmas. And so what does John's preparation look like? His preparation for a people, and we're gonna wrap it up just then, okay? So Luke 3.3 says this. It's not on the screen, so listen. He goes on to talk about this ministry of John the Baptist, and it says, and he went into all the region around around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So what was the preparation that John the Baptist made? What was him executing this part of his Christmas invasion? It was a call to repentance. So you wanna really get in the spirit of Advent, hear the call to repentance. That's the most Christmassy thing you can do. John 1, 29 through 34 says the the next, or not 34, just John 1, 1, 29 says this. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he called people to repentance and then he pointed them to Jesus. He said, turn from that way you're going and go to him. It's what he spent his whole life doing. You want to know what the future of this baby boy was? It was exactly what his, his dad prophesied over him. Is exactly what this angel spoke of him. That he would be one who would prepare the way for King Jesus by calling people to repentance and pointing them to the king. When he was... Uh, he was doing this even from the womb, which is just so uh, amazing. Filled with the spirit in the womb. You know what he did? He leapt for what? He leapt for joy when he was still in his mother's womb. Why? He heard the voice of, his, of, his, of, his, of, of Mary, the mother of his king. He was always pointing to Jesus. Even at the cost of his own ministry, the own, his own fame, he became very famous in Israel. John the Baptist was well known, not because he was normal, he was very abnormal, but he lived this life and he became very famous and he used all of his fame to do one thing, two things, call people to repentance and point them to Jesus. Ultimately, the one who the scriptures call great before the Lord said, I must decrease so that he might increase. He described himself like being a best man at a wedding. I was a best man in a wedding one time, and it was a very, like, well-attended Christian wedding in a sense. Like, Shane and Shane was leading worship right here, and then this kind of megachurch pastor was doing the wedding. And then my best, my best friend who I was a best man for was right there. And so there's a lot of people in this room, and I was like, man, I'm like about to pass out. I'm not a pass out guy. I tell you guys this all the time. I don't pass out. And I was about to pass out. And I was like horrified because I would draw attention to myself in the midst of what was about the bride and the groom. And John said, I'm like a, I'm like a best man. I don't need this attention on me. I want you to see him. So John 
was also a messenger of unstoppable joy. An angel came as a messenger of unstoppable joy. Zechariah became a messenger of unstoppable joy, and John himself was a messenger of unstoppable joy. And so this truth is just ringing in my ears this week. It's so interesting. God's plan of redemption hinges upon messengers of unstoppable joy. And I can't, I could not for the life of me figure out some reason why God did this other than that he decided to make the way in which he was going to redeem the world through messengers, messengers of unstoppable joy. He didn't have to do it that way. Jesus, I was like, did Jesus really need a forerunner? And am I like, he could just kind of take them all out. Like he didn't need any help, did he? But God decided to use John. And it got me thinking, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you this Christmas? What is God calling you to do with this text? That's why I've been like asking him all week and trying to just think and listen and understand what does God want for you from this text? And the best I can understand what I think God wants for you in this text is to become a messenger of unstoppable joy. He wants you, not, not like somebody else, not the person next to you or behind you or the person who's really good at following Jesus right now or the person who hasn't missed a devotional time or the person who's not mean to their kids in public or the person who doesn't do anything or fail in whatever way you think is making you not acceptable as a messenger of unstoppable joy. God wants you to be a messenger of unstoppable joy this Christmas season. And so there's two things that have to happen for this. One, you receive the ministry of John the Baptist. Be, be someone who receives the message of John the Baptist. Hear the call to repent from lesser joys. Repent, turn away from lesser joys. Let the main plot of history, the redemption of mankind through the salvation of Jesus, let that be, let that inform the subplots of your life, your family, your career, your suffering. Your suffering is a subplot of your life. I know that it is. It's not the main plot. Your job is a subplot of your life. It's not the main plot. Your family, look at what, look at what Zechariah said. Your family is not the main plot of this life. God's story is, and they all come underneath that. So repent of lesser joys. Let the words of the prophet speak to your heart today when he says, receive the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. When he says, let go of lesser joy to receive a greater joy of God's unfailing love in Christ. Receive that. Let go of something lesser so you can hold on to something greater. That's what the gospel is inviting you to in Christmas. Let go of something lesser and hold on to something greater that will never, ever fail. Though it is unexpected, it will never, ever fail. And then we're about to sing joy to the world. We're going to sing that. Matt's going to lead us in that in just a minute. Right, Matt? That's right. And a line in that song says, let every heart prepare him room. It's like, a, like, there's a good chance you've never thought about that line. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Don't be afraid of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of him pressing on your heart and convicting your heart where you have uh, leaned into or held on to lesser joys. Don't be afraid of that conviction. Like the discipline of Zechariah, God isn't out to steal your joy. He is out to complete your joy. I know that for sure if you were in Christ. For sure. And then, so receive the ministry of John the Baptist. Continue the ministry of John the Baptist. You like me? Yeah, you. No angel announced my birth. That's okay. 
Romans 10, 14 and 15 says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Like, well, I'm not a preacher. That's like your job. Well, I'm trying to do my job right now and commission and release you to go do your job in Christ, to receive this calling, to go. Once you have received this message of unstoppable joy for you, then you are called to go and be somebody who spreads the message of unstoppable joy. You have a part to play. Listen to this. You have a part to play in Operation Redemption. The Christmas invasion, it's been completed. But Operation Redemption is not. It's not done. It is still being enacted to redeem those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's still underway until Jesus comes again. So receive the ministry of John the Baptist today. Repent of lesser joys. And then continue the ministry of John the Baptist, sharing a news of unstoppable joy. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, would you, would you allow us uh, to actually um, believe this this morning? Wherever it is in this text that um, we find ourselves uh, making ourselves the exception, wherever in this text we're thinking this must be for somebody else, would you, Holy Spirit of God, pierce through all of the doubt, all of the distraction, all of the everything that's taking us away from you, moving us away from you, and would you help us now, even in the echo of John the Baptist's words thousands of years ago, would you help us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, my sin. You've taken it away once and for all, so would you make us now proclaimers, messengers, angels of yours to deliver this truth that you're rescuing a world who is enslaved to darkness and death. Oh, would you give us this vision of Christmas? Would you help us to not tame it? It's in Jesus' name we pray this, God. Amen.